welcome to Fast Talk, your source for the science of endurance performance. I'm your host, Trevor Connor. This episode marks a big moment for Fast Talk. This is our first episode with Robert Pickles as my new co-host. I'm excited to have him as part of the team. I really can't wait to see what he brings to the show, and i got to admit, now I'm really going to have to keep on top of my research because Rob knows his stuff. For Rob's first episode, we brought in a very special guest, Dr. Inigo Sambalan. The two of them worked together at the University of Colorado Sports Medicine and Performance Center. Dr. Sambalan is the head physiologist for UAA Team Emirates and coaches 2021 Tour de France winner Tade Pogachar. But since winning the Tour de France wasn't enough for Dr. Sambalan, He's also doing work with Dr. George Brooks on the role of lactate metabolism in cancer. You've heard us say it a hundred times before. If you want to be at your best, you have to take your recovery seriously. In this episode, Dr. Samalan dives into the physiology of why we need recovery. He explains cortisol, catabolic states, the breakdown of muscle protein, and why staying in a catabolic state can not only lead to overtraining, but chronic inflammation and even disease. Dr. Samalan also recently wrote a paper on the biomarkers of recovery, and we finish out the episode by offering suggestions on ways you can test and monitor your recovery. So in short, our message today is get your rest. Joining Dr. Samalan, we hear from a host of other experts, including Dr. Jason Glowney, who is the head physician at CU Sports, Armando Mastrosi, the founder of Exert Training Software, and Coach Jeff Winkler here in Boulder. So sit down, strap on your compression boots, check your cortisol level, and let's make you fast. On last week's episode, number 204, we said farewell to our longtime co-host, Chris Case. He's back this week, in a sense, as we share Chris's N1 Challenge video on FastTalkLabs.com. About a year ago, the Fast Talk Labs team all declared a personal N1 Challenge, a big, scary ride that would push each of them to test themselves, to try something new, and to push their limits. Chris Case's N1 Challenge was bikepacking around an entire country, the island nation of Iceland. Our video producer, Sam Sullivan, has released Chris's N1 Challenge video on our website. Watch as Chris and a partner ride past spectacular coastlines, roaring waterfalls, and blasting volcanic sandstorms over epic 200-kilometer days in the saddle and nights spent under the stars. If you thought you knew Chris Case, think again. Watch his new N1 Challenge video for an all-new appreciation of Chris, who embodies cycling grit and a love of exploration. See it at FastTalkLabs.com. Well, Dr. Samalan, welcome back to the show. It's always a pleasure having you. These are always great episodes with your, your knowledge of physiology and training and, and coaching. And I have to say, you know, this is kind of a, a special episode for us in several ways because this is our first episode with Rob as my co-host and you two have a, a bit of a background with one another. We do. And I can't believe that this is the first episode, Trevor, that you and I have together then also bringing Dr. San Milan in because I've worked with some absolute pillars in the sports science world and I'm extremely fortunate to have had Dr. San Milan mentor me. So I cannot share the countless things that he has taught me that I've learned from him. It's really a benefit to me and a benefit to all of our listeners. Thank you very much, uh, uh, Rob, for the nice words and, uh, and, and Trevor also for the invitation. It's great to, to be back and I appreciate it. And Rob, yeah, it was, I was also very fortunate to be able to work with you, a uh, very talented uh, physiologist, and it was always a great experience. So really appreciate it. It's always a pleasure to be, to be back. 
a bit of a special episode for all of us. And like I said, it's always a joy having you on the episode. So today we're going to talk about not just recovery, but but something I really appreciate from you is that we have all these ways of measuring training, but you're really going to talk about the importance of being able to, to measure recovery. But before we get there, I have a, a question for you that I'm really actually excited to ask you because we've talked a lot of times on the show about you need recovery. Recovery is important about how cyclists and, and endurance athletes tend to really focus on the training side, but they see taking time off the bike, taking the running shoes off and sitting on the couch as lost training, which they shouldn't see it as. So I want to ask you from a physiological standpoint, why is recovery so essential to training? Yeah, well, so as you said very well, we focus too much or the right amount of time, right? On training and, and bioenergetics and nutrition and different training zones, et cetera, right? But uh, yeah, I, I think it's great, you know, to, to focus also on recovery, which is an area that uh, many times is uh, overlooked by uh, many people out there. And it's absolutely key because uh, that, that recovery period is where you're going to simulate and supercompensate. And many of these metabolic stressors, they're elicited by training. Uh, they need to be completed in the recovery phase, right? We we have to always, or I, I try always to keep in mind that training and competition is both physiological and metabolic and even mental stress on the body, right? And, and that's what's going to elicit multiple responses to improve. But again, you know, without proper recovery, it is not going to be possible to optimize those stressors uh, elicited by exercise. That's why recovery, it's, it's a big deal. And, and at least, you know, over all this uh, 26 years working with athletes, uh, to me, recovery and monitoring their recovery, because uh, as we we're going to speak about, recovery is not just go and take a nap or go to sleep eight hours, right? There are many more areas, but this has been as big as training, to me at least. So what would you say, I mean, a lot of our listeners obviously are not pros, they're not training six hours a week. And, and I've heard this from people where they'll say, I don't go out and do six hour rides. I don't train 30 hours a week. I'm just doing one, two hours. So it's stressful, but it's not that stressful on my body. My body can handle it. So I don't need to take recovery days. What would your response to them be? Yeah, it is like, you're right. Yeah, I, I, the response will be like, you can really get overtrained and fatigued even if you train only six hours a week or seven hours a week. Uh, and I do it myself, right? I, you know, most of us are very busy with a lot of going on and we try to squeezing time from work or family or multiple things that we might be doing uh, and we might not be able to do more than eight hours, right? But it, it is that our regular activities that might interfere with our training. So, you know, it happens to me that, you know, when, when I have, for example, a very stressful week or a very busy week, I might go out for an hour and have ride and I'm dead, yeah. right? And that might be just my second day of the week. And like, uh, so yeah, so that, that's what I need. Like, well, how in the world I'm, I'm overtrained or fatigued, right? When I'm just doing an hour and a half. And, and, and last week I only trained three days or four days and, I, I, and not over an hour and a half any of the days. So, you know, intuitively you think there's no way I'm overtrained or fatigued. But yes, you are. Because, uh, um, you know, like you have so many stressors or so many things in life that are going to interfere with your exercise that even a small dose of exercise can can be difficult to overcome. You know, and I think when these time-crunched athletes, because that's a lot of what we're talking about, they are viewing training as the way that they get better. And, and everybody is in this to improve their performance. But 
they're not willing to take the recovery when they really ought to be because even if overtraining isn't the issue, that recovery is important to the adaptation that improves their performance. So by missing out on the recovery, they're not ultimately getting the goal that they're working so hard toward achieving. No, agree completely. Yeah, me too. So getting ready for this podcast, Rob and I both actually read a, a paper of yours that uh, I really enjoyed. So that's your, uh, it's actually a chapter called Blood Biomarkers in Sports Medicine and Performance and the Future of Metabolomics. And something that I really liked in there is you, you talked about overtraining and you expressed overtraining as essentially a recovery imbalance. Yeah, that, that's how I would describe, right? Yeah, it's just like when someone's overtrained, there's an imbalance there. Either the input from the training dose is too much and or the recovery is too little. And there's like a, that, that imbalance. And many times it starts by the training. You know, maybe the training zones are not correctly dialed in for an athlete. And we might think, let's say, as an example, that that athlete is training zone two, but actually it's training zone three. Right. So if you do that multiple times a week, you're definitely going over, you know, the prescribed zones uh, or sometimes uh, maybe the high intensity workouts, you know, like the threshold. Again, it might not be very well dialed in and you're actually going over. Right. Or, or maybe it's just the way they're spaced out is not enough. Right. And then on the other side is the, uh, the maybe the nutrition is not there. Maybe the, that person is restricting carbohydrates or, or maybe the nutritionist working with that athlete is, is trying to get that athlete on a diet that is going to be more restrictive in calories without taking into account what that athlete is training. And therefore, they're not on the same page. And that might very well cause overtraining, which is what I see so many times. That's interesting because um, Ryan Kohler, head coach, he's brought that up a lot, that sometimes problems with training, problems with energy is just due to a, an insufficiency in nutrition. Absolutely. And, and I've always enjoyed working with, uh, with Ryan. He's one of the best nutritionists I've worked with. And uh, yeah, we, we always were interacting together, bringing both energy balance and, and, and training workload. And yeah, and we, we had multiple of these discussions, right? That yeah, that they go together. And, and if one of them is off, it's difficult. And this is why now even with, you know, the Pogacar, for example, you know, like every single day that he trains, he has his nutrition dialed in according to the training workload. So the train the, the day that he trains more, our nutritionist Gorkaprito, which is one of, who's one of the best in the world, he we, we communicate all the time. So he prescribes the nutrition according to his specific workload for today. Tomorrow will be a different day, and then uh, different workload. So he will adjust that specifically for tomorrow's workout. And then there might be things uh, along the way where maybe an athlete is feeling tired or, or, or fatigued or maybe not tolerating. So, okay, we're going to change the workload tomorrow and therefore the nutrition will be changed as well or maybe increased or so. But I think that they, they, they go hand to hand, nutrition and training. It's a must. And this is something that now they're starting to interact. But yeah, you know, not just in cycling, but in, in other teams, you know, you see that you know, more of the, the training side on one hand and, and the nutrition on, on the other hand, not, not talking to each other. And, 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 and this is very, very important. Now, Dr. Sen Milan, when we're talking about nutrition being imbalanced with the training, for you, is that a general nutrition strategy? Is that carbohydrate restriction? What are we seeing from athletes that's causing the potential to increase the risk of overtraining? Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, 
I, I see that as a little bit of everything, but I, I think that if I would were to kind of identify one element is usually carbohydrates, right? Um, athletes, they, they, they don't, many athletes, they tend to restrict carbohydrates or not have enough. We know that when you train, even at the aerobic level, right, or zone two or so, you can, you can burn or oxidize about two, 1.5 to 2.5 grams per minute, right? So um, yeah, that, that's a lot of carbohydrates. Also, we, we normally think that this is just fat burning zones, right? But you also burn glucose. So uh, we should not, uh, yeah, we should remember about that. So because those days are typical days where an athlete says, oh, I, I train aerobic, I burn fat, I don't need to eat a lot of carbohydrates. Well, well, actually, yeah, you burn that day maybe 300 grams of carbohydrates or 500 grams of carbohydrates. So there, that, that's right there, your entire glycogen storage is. So this is what uh, nutrition has to be there. And, and I think that uh, carbohydrates, it's a main problem that we see. Then that's where when cyclists or you know, athletes, they get into this vicious cycle that I call, because let's say that um, you, you didn't think that you needed to replenish carbohydrates correctly today, but actually you run out of glycogen storages or were low. And tomorrow you have a, a big day, whether it's intensity or whether it's uh, duration, and you don't have enough carbohydrates. So you're going to start tapping on muscle protein because as we know, muscle protein, uh, there are different amino acids. Uh, um, a main one is uh, glutamine can be uh, utilized for energy directly into mitochondria, right? Or other gluconeogenic amino acids, like many of the uh, branching amino acids can be become glucose, right? So the body has these ways to try to provide you energy. But in these situations when there's no glycogen, yeah, it's just like, it's like the muscles start eating themselves to feed themselves. And, and, and that's where you start getting into more catabolic situation and that anabolic to catabolic uh, balance is disrupted. And, and, and that, that can put any athlete right there in, in overtraining in no time. Yes, certainly. You mentioned that there's an increase in energy created from protein right through gluconeogenesis. What other downstream effects does training with low glycogen have? Are there endocrine system changes or anything else? Yeah, so that's a great point too. So one of the things is like, yeah, you, you, you might have some hormonal imbalances, right? So in disruption. So for example, the precursor, right, of, of, of proteolysis, which is protein breakdown, is cortisol. So this is one of the parameters of biomarkers that we see in athletes who have very high levels of cortisol. It's a hormone that responds to both psychological and physiological stress. So when an athlete is not mentally stressed, but uh, you see very high levels of cortisol, that athlete is, is breaking down more protein than normal probably. And then you look at the anabolic side of it, which is testosterone. So you look at the ratio and many times you see athletes with very low testosterone levels because they have to keep replenishing, replenishing the catabolic effects, right, of cortisol and lack of energy while training. So that's where you, you start getting that catabolic profile of the athletes. And that takes them to a different layer, which is more inflammation, right? So the inflammation that we see when, when you have muscle breakdown, you end up with muscle micro tears and muscle damage not seen as an injury, right? But you can see muscle damage. Uh, and there, there are multiple research studies on these, right? For decades with muscle biopsies, looking at, at, at disruptions in the muscle structure 
But we can, we can see this in blood analysis and biomarkers. And the thing is, too, is that the physiological mechanism to repair or, or one of the physiological mechanisms to repair muscles is inflammation, right? And inflammation also brings usually water retention and liquid retention. So this is one of the times also where these cyclists, they're, they're trying to eat less and then they get a muscle breakdown and, and, and they get catabolic and they end up gaining more weight. And a big part of that weight is, is liquid, right? And they say, I gained three pounds or, or six pounds. So how in the world I'm eating a lot less? Yeah, but you have inflammation, low-grade inflammation. And particularly in, in the Boulder area, as we know, people tend to be really hardcore when it comes to nutrition and training. And we see a lot of people with uh, muscle damage and uh, especially in the age groupers, right? That's something that caught my attention. People in their 40s, 50s, 60s, they have a lot of muscle damage chronically. And we still don't know what the consequences could be about this because normally historically we haven't seen this. This is the first time in, in humans where we see people in their 60s, 70s training and doing marathons uh, at a regular pace, right? But uh, they have low-grade chronic inflammation. Now, we know from uh, medical research and, and, and epidemiological studies that uh, chronic low-grade inflammation can, can lead to uh, multiple diseases. So this is an area where uh, I'm, I'm particularly concerned. And then the other uh, endocrine uh, responses that we see is like uh, thyroid function. So we know that uh, this is the thing, like I used to see before coming to Colorado, especially maybe one people a year, diagnosed with uh, a hypothyroidism. Now in Colorado, you see, and other places in the country, sure, I'm, I'm just, you know, because we're in Colorado, we, we see hardcore athletes all the time, right? But I, I, I've been seeing once a week and the immense majority of these people, they do not have hypothyroidism. And the explanation is this, they, they are really tired, they're really fatigued for months and they're drugging their feet and they finally go to their doctors and they do a blood analysis and uh, part of the regular panels that are done of chemistry panels is TSH, which is cheap to do. And then TSH shows it's a little bit elevated, but in the, in the low high end, right, of, of uh, TSH. And so therefore the doctor says, okay, there's like a chronic fatigue, which is a sign of hypothyroidism and there are high levels of TSH, bingo. So that athlete, uh, in many occasions, leaves that doctor's office with a prescription with, for thyroid medication. And when you have thyroid medication, you typically, people start using maybe 50 micro, 25 to 50 micrograms, and, and they start feeling good, but it's artificial. It's like if you're tired and fatigued and you have a, a gallon of coffee, you're going to feel good, but eventually you're going to develop resistance. And yeah. this is where uh, many of these people, they, they start with 50 micrograms, 75, 100, 125. And when they get to those levels, the, the thyroid function is gone and there's nothing you can do. So they have to be on that medication for the rest of their lives where they never needed to be on that medication in the first place. So one of the things that I've been trying to do at the School of Medicine and trying to talk to several endocrinologists working with thyroid areas, right? It's like whenever you see someone with that profile who's an athlete or active individual who's chronically fatigued and tired and slightly elevated TSH levels, please do more further analysis. Looking at T3, T4 antibodies, you know, that, uh, uh, that they really can give you the whole picture. And the majority of the cases, they do not have hypothyroidism. So anyway, this is another, but there's a disruption in the endocrine system where uh, TSH uh, uh, produces a little bit more than normal. And, and, and it might fool you 
thinking that, in fact, you have hypothyroidism, which you don't have. The problem is most doctors wouldn't know to look for that. And and I can share an example of an athlete that, you know, this was not a story that ended well who, who experienced this. She was a uh, talented marathon runner, but she had only been running for two years. So she was still early in her career. And she got hold of the training plan from a friend who was an Olympic marathon runner and just jumped right into that level of training, which was way too much for her. I had a chance to talk with her because she was getting ready for one of her big events and she was just fatigued and doing what a lot of inexperienced athletes were doing, saying, I'm not performing very well. I need to increase my training. I need to train harder. And I was talking with her going, uh, you know, I, I had a couple conversations where I was like, that's not the issue. The issue is you are overreached, pushing over training right now and convinced her to take a couple weeks off and she was terrified but she she felt she had no choice so she did that a couple weeks before her event and then I had her do a very gradual getting back of the legs before the event and just because she went into that marathon rested <laughs> she had her best performance ever but then basically said problem solved thank you went back to doing that olympic training plan and she is as you just said she's now on thyroid medication for the rest of her life I don't know. Yeah, that's uh, unfortunate because, yeah, there are many cases like that. And I think like, so, yeah, so it's great that you guys are bringing this subject. Thank you for doing that because I really think that among all of us involved in this space, right, we need to kind of raise awareness both for athletes as well as for providers, right, to that this is, this could be a serious problem down the road. And, and, and then we really need to make sure that this is well diagnosed before someone is put on, on uh, thyroid medication. Right. And I'll also bring awareness to another problem that a lot of people probably aren't aware of. So you were talking about that inflammation. I went snowshoeing a couple of weekends ago and I hadn't snowshoed in about five months or a while since basically last year. And I planned an hour, took a, a wrong route, ended up doing over two hours. And the next day, my legs were so swollen there was so much water in my legs. Yeah. I was getting made fun of at work because my pants kept going, riding up my legs and it looked like my pants <laughs> were about five sizes too short for me. So we need to inform people of this. There's another side effect, another problem that, that a lot of people aren't aware of. Your pants are going to look bad. Yeah, exactly. And no, absolutely. <laughs> and, and yeah, and then, and then, so yeah, and if it's in your case, right, it's acute, right? But, yeah. uh, but we see, you know, people that are chronically in that situation. And, and I don't think that that can be good. And we know already from epidemiological studies that low-grade inflammation is, is, is usually related to uh, developing different diseases, right? So yeah. I don't think it's good to be in that situation. And, and also what, what I want to point out is like a, that substrate are an uh, imbalance also that is very typical too. Like we know very well that when you have muscle damage, you cannot store glycogen correctly. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's going to create an extra big problem. And in addition, which is going to add more fire to that, that uh, vicious cycle, right? Over training where, where that person uh, um, now finally starts, okay, now I have to eat more carbohydrates, right? And it starts eating more carbohydrates, but uh, there's a lot of muscle damage. So you cannot store glycogen properly. It's like trying to grab water with your hands, right? And, and we don't know exactly the mechanisms of why when there's muscle damage, you cannot stroke glycogen properly. But until you do not repair your muscle fibers or micro tears, you're not going to fully store glycogen. So again, this is this is more reason to be preventive through proper monitoring 
right? And, and be hand to hand with nutrition. And, and I, I never get tired of saying this, right? That nutrition and, and training, they, they must go hand to hand. It's critical for all of us, pro or amateur, to monitor our recovery so we don't slip into an overtrained state. I asked Dr. Jason Clowney, from a clinical perspective, what are some of the most important markers that athletes need to pay attention to? I think you know some of it can be uh, boiled down to you know subjective things that they can uh, they can listen for. You know what I do when I get out of bed is I take uh, I take an assessment of how I'm feeling. Usually it's pretty stiff and sore, and about ten minutes later it's feeling a little bit better. But uh, those heavy legs, those things that you can kind of feel when you're uh, taking those first steps in the morning, you know that's an important sign, a uh, thing that you can kind of look at. I think it's wise to actually monitor your vitals at home. Uh, you can uh, see what your resting heart rate is in the morning. You know, sometimes that's a prelude to uh, some type of um, overtraining, mildly so. Uh, we call it um, like a functional overreach uh, if it's, a, if it's a, a short-term thing. But also looking at um, hydration status. Um, when I'm training hard, I like to get on the scale frequently so you can kind of know, um, get a good idea of what your um, fluid status is. Unless you're trying to lose weight and you're expecting the numbers to keep going down, you want to try to maintain a body weight. And uh, doing it after rides, too, is, is quite important. You can get a better idea of how much fluid you lost out there. And physiology, uh, we think uh, losing about 2% of your fluid uh, or plasma volume is probably okay. Anything above 4%, there's actually going to be uh, quite a detriment to your performance, it seems. So uh, those are probably some of the more important things to do. Usually in these uh, high-level athletes, they're hyper-aware of what their bodies feel like. And I think that um, has played a big role in keeping them out of trouble. Uh, we see a lot of athletes, and it's kind of become more and more common to hear about uh, athletes like Cav this year who had a reactivation of Epstein-Barr and just the amount of time that he lost as a result of it. We tend to get in the situation when you're feeling good, you want to do more, race more, train harder. It's a thing that uh, you got to listen to your coach and listen to uh, kind of that inner voice and you're telling you it's probably not a good idea to do this. I see uh, people, every other injury that comes in, they said I was feeling great and I kept pushing and pushing and now this happened. So uh, just keep that in mind. And I think uh, learning to be subjective about how you're really feeling, taking stock in, um, in things every day, I think that plays a huge role with uh, keeping you out of trouble. So if you're going out for a ride or if an athlete's going out for the ride, are there any particular signs if they have those, you would say, turn around, go home, or talk to your coach, or, or go sure. see a medical doctor. I think the biggest rides that that plays in is if you have intensity on your schedule. Um, and uh, I'll tell my patients that uh, if you're going out there and uh, you're doing uh, some of the first reps on the set, and uh, boy, it's just not uh, coming around, you're really struggling to hit your numbers, that's not the time to try to push through it. I think you kind of uh, stop the set, um, just spin easy, go home, take a break, eat, rest, see how you feel the next day. Talk to your coach if you do have one and uh, kind of see what they suggest. Is it something that it was a key workout that you got to make up or is it one of these ones that wasn't that big of a deal that you can skip it this week and uh, meanwhile recover and feel good and fresh uh, for the next round? I think you brought up a really important point earlier on when you talked about the cortisol response, which puts you in that catabolic state. You said that stress causes cortisol release, and we're talking both physical and psychological stress. And you know, a study that, that had a big impact on me when I was doing some research on overreaching, looking at right now, it's monitoring the athlete's training response. Subjective, uh, self-reported measures trump commonly used objective measures. And something that really caught me in this study is they basically said some of these tests of your mood state, so your REST-Q, your MTDS, pick up overtraining before a lot of these objective measures. 
showing just how that mood state, the the mental side, how important that is. And as you point out, recreational riders might not put in a lot of hours, but they might have a lot of work and life stress that's going to have an impact. Absolutely. Exactly. And uh, yeah, and how many times I, I, I've seen a blood analysis and someone's cortisol levels are off the chart, right? And, uh, and, and obviously the first thing is, oh my God, you're training too much, right? And, like, and then you start seeing like, no, actually this person is not training more than five hours a week or so. But then you see like, whoa, that person is going through enormous mental stress or, or maybe some events, right? They, they're going through some drama, you know, or some, you know, dramatic situation in their lives, you know, or a stressful. Like, yeah, sure. That, that, that alone, you know, is going to get cortisol off the chart and it's going to interfere with recovery, with uh, the, the, the anabolic, catabolic balance, right? And, and therefore, yeah, you you're, have a lot more chances to, to become overtrained. So, Dr. Sinmalan, we've we've really covered the high level and we fully understand that overtraining is is a big issue for a lot of people, both at the amateur and at the professional level. But how do we even know when overtraining or overreaching or any of this imbalance is occurring? Yeah, that's a that's a great point. And and this is what we we need obviously as many um scientific methods to deploy, uh, but also we can be creative. So uh Trevor, you described earlier like uh those uh, mood state uh, tests, you know, and indirect parameters that already can give us some information, right? But then we have a, a whole wealth of weaponeries out there that we can deploy. So obviously blood analysis, and we can discuss that more in, in depth later, but blood analysis are going to give us tremendous amount of uh, information, right? But we, we also have uh, also, you know, multiple other parameters, like looking at your training peaks, for example, you know, you can see workload, if you if if you have some experience coaching, you can you, you can really see that that athlete is not completing training completely. So, for example, training piece for me is my bible, and I have no uh, conflict of interest, right? I don't have any financial relationship with training piece. It's like a it's been a wonderful tool, right? A transformative, right? For for cycling, you know, and and triathlon and running, and hopefully they can keep growing in other sports too. So one thing I, I look at uh, the training, and one of the things that you start seeing is uh, heart rate. Heart rate is uh, it's a true physiological parameter, and um, it's been kind of uh, forgotten. Although it's coming back, but I still remember about a decade ago or a little bit more, like people didn't want to know anything about heart rate. I, I vividly remember, and I'm sure Rob, you were because we were talking about this a while back, right? Uh, and with Trevor. The same thing, right? It's like how people just trained by watts and then and heart rate was old school and didn't mean anything, right? But fortunately, heart rate is back and now we know everything about heart rate variability. It's a big concept, et cetera, right? But, but one thing that I see right away is like, uh, you know, the heart rate response to exercise. If a cyclist has today, for example, intervals at uh, lactate press or, you know, or FTP, and we know that at those power output, let's put a number, let's say 300 watts, the heart rate normally is, uh, let's say, 180 beats per minute. And, and today, the, the heart rate is 165. And that athlete is telling you, man, my heart rate doesn't get up. That's a sign of, of, of fatigue yes. right there. They, they, you can see right in the spot without the need of blood analysis, just looking at the data. So yeah, so one of the things that I, I, I do uh, every morning, I just look at the, the data from training pictures from the athletes uh, on the team, you know, on the team UAE, for example. And, and that's where I started identifying things like this. Uh, and I contact them and I tell them that, hey, how, you know, how do you feel? And like, yeah, today my heart was not responsive. And that's where you start 
concluding that in fact there there, there are issues right other times is the, the athlete himself or herself who contacts you right and tells you hey there's something wrong my heart doesn't get up don't have good legs good sensations so i always tell them listen to your heart and it, this is a, this is a very powerful parameter that I have always I've used for a long time since I was a cyclist since I was 16, 15 years old I was using heart rate for this and it's been very helpful for me. So with with, with heart rate again it's a true physiological parameter. So you know when to break down glycogen uh, into glucose you need colomines and these are indispensable because that that that's one of the main major triggers for the breakdown of glycogen into glucose for energy purposes. So the body has about, about 500 grams, roughly, it can be more or less of glycogen. That's not how we store glucose, right? The brain alone uses about 125 grams a day. That's a normal brain. So then you will be left with about 375 grams, let's say, if you have 500 grams total. But if, you're, if you have a very stressful life or very highly mentally mental activity all day, yeah, your brain is going to utilize more glucose, or maybe twice, and therefore your glycogen surges are going to be lower. But anyways, the important thing of this is that the body is very wise, and the brain is very wise, and the brain senses that there's not enough glycogen in the body. So the brain, in a way, tells the legs, hey, look, I, I don't care much about your legs. You know, I am, I'm the boss, I'm the sheriff. And uh, I need the glucose, right? So I don't want you to break down so much glucose. I don't want you to shut down completely, glycogen breakdown, and same thing for to the liver, right? I don't want you to shut down completely because we will die, especially me, the, the brain, right? But I want you to break down less uh, glycogen, right? And, and this is what we also capture in the uh, metabolic testing with athletes. So uh, an athlete who has low glycogen might be oxidizing 2.5 grams, for example, at a given intensity, but now it's oxidizing 1.5 grams for one gram. So what, what drives that is like a decrease in correct glycogen breakdown rate. And that's driven by a decrease in catecholamines. Well, guess what activates the heart? Catecholamines, the, the famous mm -hmm. adrenaline and noradrenaline, right? Uh, and this is what we might not see that at rest, but especially we see it at high exercise intensities where because of those lower secretion of, of catecholamines to protect, right, the uh, breakdown of glycogen into glucose, yeah, as a collateral effect, the, the heart activation is going to be lower. So this is why it's always very important to listen to your heart. And this is a sign when the heart rate doesn't get up normally and, and it's like 8, 7, 10 bits per minute lower at high efforts, absolutely that's a sign of glycogen uh, depletion or lower glycogen levels. Both Dr. Samalan and I are old school believers in checking your resting heart rate, but I had a chance to talk with Armando Bastrasi, the developer of Exert Training Software, his thoughts on those metrics and whether the software can effectively analyze your recovery state. You know, I believe that up until this point, a lot of the coaches and more enthusiasts have been using the existing metrics and trying to interpret them to understand how much uh, acute training load and chronic training load and try to understand you know, what kind of recovery demands they might have as a result of those. But it requires lots of interpretation. Part of that is because of the differences that you're going to see in results from individual to individual. So with an exert, because we're a little more precise in terms of identifying strain, because we're identifying across multiple dimensions, that we can start to identify uh, recovery in a more generalized way. So the user, the athlete, doesn't necessarily need to understand all of the ways and what the numbers and how to interpret the numbers, we now interpret them for the user. 
So one of the things you'll notice within the software is that when you first log in, you'll see a, a number of stars on your on your screen. We call it training status. And what we what we do is we combine two dimensions that you would normally get from your PMC, or in our case, what's called the XPMC, which is your you know, chronic training load, acute training load, is an interpretation of that information for you automatically. So we show you essentially what your training load is. We show you rather than as, as a number, we give you a star. So people talk about, I want to get to my third star, I want to get to my fourth star. And all that really means is that they want to accumulate more training load. And so we, right. we give them, so it becomes more motivational rather than chasing a number is to say, oh, okay, I'm chasing a certain level, right? And we associate level three as being a competitive athlete where you got to reach a certain level of training load. So you'll see that with a number of stars, but then we color code the stars as well to let you know whether, what's the software, what's the data showing about how you should be feeling, right? So if you just came off, a, you know, a big multiple rides over the weekend, they'll turn red, right? You'll show, it'll show you as being very tired. And we get a lot of questions saying, you know, it's showing I'm very tired, but I'm not very tired. We always have to explain, no, it's just what the data is expressing about you. You know, the data can't know how you feel. It can only say what the data says about how you feel. And we do characterize it in terms to try and match how we expect them to feel, because then it kind of makes sense to say, oh, if it says I'm very tired, you know, the software is going to prescribe recovery. It's going to, let's say, give you a couple of days before it'll prescribe additional training. And these become easy visuals for people to interpret and to follow. So this is kind of how we believe the software can come in, is to give an interpretation of what the data says about an individual and help them identify how they, you know, really what, how they should be treating their recovery. Again, anybody can do whatever they feel like at the time, but at least the software is giving them some level of interpretation of the information. So it sounds like the software is using things like the, the acute training load to say, hey, you just hit yourself with a lot of training. That's beyond what you could normally what you normally do correct so you might be getting fatigued right now but it's, it's indirect measures at the end of the day it's indirect right yeah we can certainly look to incorporate and there's a desire to do this is to incorporate incorporate hrv so if we start collecting hrv which is, data which is heart rate variability heart rate sorry. variability right which is another and there have there been actually some some of our users that are are actually doing that actively they'll monitoring the hrv corresponding with uh the data that they get from our system so there is there is a sort of relationship in fact going back to uh tanya church Churchill, she actually did it in an assessment where she compared the uh the recovery demands with uh a recovery index from HRV, and she found, you know, that they're directly related. So it was kind of interesting. We could certainly do the very, very something very similar. Tis the season for spring knee, as March sunshine and early spring weather inspires us to ramp up our riding mileage. Our knees don't always keep up. If you've got knee pain, we have the solution for you. Fast Talk Lab members can follow our new knee health pathway, featuring our new director of sports medicine, Dr. Andy Pruitt. See the introduction to the knee health pathway at fasttalklabs.com. What I find really interesting, you know, I'm, I'm very big on telling athletes you need to use heart rate, you need to use power, you need to use rate of perceived exertion. You, you can't just do intervals, lock it in a given wattage and think that you, you're executing perfectly. And I tell them about this lowered heart rate. And I always find it interesting when athletes see that, I tend to get one of two responses. One is, well, you see, that's why heart rate's useless because I was 170 last week at that wattage and, and this week I was 163. So heart rate's giving me bad data as opposed to going, well, I'm fatigued. 
Likewise, I'll have athletes that will go to do their intervals, see that their heart rate's low, and then destroy themselves to get that heart rate up. Instead of what I find athletes really struggle with is seeing that low heart rate and going, maybe I shouldn't be doing my intervals today. Exactly. And, and that, that's what I tell athletes always, listen to your heart. And, and if the heart rate doesn't get up today, the best training day today is turn around, go home, recover, pile up on carbohydrates, and you'll still have tomorrow. You do it again, uh, the training, uh, you, you, you postpone it until tomorrow and you're going to feel much better. And in fact, you, you feel it. And, and the thing of doing this with the heart rate is that if, if you listen to the heart rate every day, you're going to be on top of it, right? If you never listen to the heart, you keep pushing it, as you said, you push it and push it. And that's where you get the to a worse situation, right? But I, I think it's very important. And, and another thing I like to point out about the heart rate is also the resting heart rate in the morning. Uh, this is, a, again, I've been using this since I was 15 years old and, and call me old school if you want to. But uh, I think that um, this was like a, maybe a, the first concept that me and others, like, you know, were doing, you know, back in the days of heart rate variability. I know that the, the definition of heart rate variability has changed now and is a little bit more complicated. And now we, you have fancy softwares and et cetera. But at the end of the day, you know, like a very simple looking at the heart rate as we have discussed, with high intensity efforts, that's a heart rate variability from one day to another, right? But also there's another way of heart rate variability in the morning. So let's say that your heart rate in the morning when you wake up and you don't need to put a heart rate monitor on, you can just, you know, like a count through your um, pulse, right? Um, you know, in your wrist and, and count it 15 and multiply it by four or, or count it a whole minute if you want to, right? But let's say your, your, your beats per minute, which usually are quite constant, Let's say that you're like 50, right? And, uh, and, and tomorrow you're 49 and the next day you're 48 and then 52. You're, you're within, you know, within a very narrow range. And that's the way you, most of the times is. But let's, let's suppose that one day you wake up and you're 65, right? That's not normal, right? Because it's a deviation. It's a, a variability, right? From the normalcy. And uh, uh, that means something. There's something physiological. Again, we have to remember, right, that Heart rate is a truly physiological parameter and it's responding to something. And so that day could be that you're not um, assimilating the training correctly and maybe you haven't recovered from the day before. Or sometimes you're incubating a virus. And how many times I've, I've, I've told this to athletes, like, a, man, because they seem to be, many times you see, in fact, that, that they haven't recovered completely. So, okay, you know, today we're going to take it easy. But other times, like, man, you know, you're recovering well, but you might be incubating a virus. And like, what are you talking about? Yeah, well, three days later or two days later, boom, they come down with a, with a cold or a flu. And, you know, this is, this is all pre-COVID, right? But anyway, this is an indicative. And then, uh, so that's the thing. When, when I, people start using these methodologies as well, the best way, like if you wake up with a heart rate that is significantly elevated to what it usually is, okay, maybe you can go out there and train, but go with all the radars on right? Uh, and listen to every single movement that you do. And, and normally, yeah, if you have bad sensations that day, something is out of whack, you're going through something, either not recovering or incubating the virus or something like that. Same thing, turn around, go home and, and recover. And maybe the next day you still are high, or maybe the next day, boom, you're back to 50. And that's where you can resume training. So heart rate in the morning, uh, it's very, very, very useful parameter. I have used it with uh, elite athletes, all these years and I still do. Dr. Sinmalan, I love this holistic approach that you have, right? Because then we can get this really great depth and understanding of what's happening inside of somebody 
how do we take that holistic approach and, and begin looking at blood biomarkers? How much more information can we get about an athlete from the various things that we can look at derived from the blood? Yeah, so I, there are multiple biomarkers, as you very well know, Rob, right? So one thing that I, I look at within biomarkers, there's other holistic approaches, right? So I look at the overall thing. So one of the first things that I look at are um, oxygen carrying capacity uh, biomarkers, right? So in the top one that I look at is hemoglobin. So one gram of hemoglobin transports 1.34 milliliters of oxygen, right? So um, if, uh, if you have a drop of only one gram of hemoglobin, your oxygen carrying capacity is going to decrease somewhere between six to seven percent, right? So that you know might not be a performance killer, but might be could it could be, and it's definitely going to decrease your 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 performance. So we have to pay attention to that, right? Um, the oxygen carrying capacity. At the end of the day, when people come to altitude here to Colorado or or the Italian Alps or Sierra Nevada in Spain or whatever, the whole purpose is to increase uh, hemoglobin. Right, oxygen carrying capacity because obviously it's a huge advantage. So, if you decrease it uh, because you're overtrained, that's when uh, yeah your oxygen care capacity is going to be jeopardized. And uh, so this is one biomarker, and we can get into why people decrease their hemoglobin. But yeah, that's one biomarker. I do want to dig into that one a little bit deeper because it's the question that I had as you were speaking. And I'm sure that it's the question that the listeners have. We know that the hemoglobin decrease is going to decrease performance, but how is that related to overtraining? What are the mechanisms, you know, if we're using it as a biomarker, what are the mechanisms that are causing it to come down when the athlete is doing too much or not recovering enough? Yeah, exactly. So it is a sign that the body is not uh, adapting correctly, right? It is a sign of that. So this is, this is one of the eternal discussions that I have with many um, nutritionists, right? Where they look at hemoglobin and, uh, or, or decreasing in, in, in red blood cells. And right away they say, oh, this is an iron uh, deficiency issues, right? When no, it's, it is not necessarily an iron deficiency issues because you can see that uh, their, their ferritin levels, which is how we store iron, they're completely normal, right? So this is, this is why um, it's not an iron deficiency issue. And it's a no training issue. And that's something that is sometimes, again, this is why we, it's important to, to, to work with nutritionists who know something, right, about um, physiology and metabolism and, and training because it's easier for them to understand concepts like this, right, and the importance of, of that. Um, because if people take, oh, it's a, the typical thing, oh, you need to take iron. You need to take iron and it doesn't do absolutely anything. And this is something that, no, we need to make sure that we understand these concepts in a more holistic manner. Dr. Simulan, when we're having low hemoglobin, we're having low red blood cells in the athlete. Is that because they're not making enough? Is it because their red blood cells are dying? What, what's leading to this low hemoglobin in the overtrained person? So, no, yeah. So every day we destroy 200 billion with B red blood cells. Is the, of all the cells in the body, red blood cells have the highest turnover. So we, we, if we destroy 200 billion red blood cells, we need to replace them. So uh, within, I always say that the red blood cell is the taxi of the oxygen, but within the red blood cell, the hemoglobin is this, the actual seat where the oxygen sits, right? And uh, so to assemble uh, hemoglobin, you need iron and you need vitamin B12 and folic acid, as well as the red blood cell too. So, you know, that, that's what I was saying immediately. 
many, many nutritionists or many doctors too, they, they see a decrease in hemoglobin or red blood cells and they write, oh, wow, this is an iron issue. So they start giving iron. But, uh, but no, you might have plenty of iron. It is just that you're not producing enough red blood cells. And, and, and this is where you get into the whole anabolic, catabolic situation. So um, to produce a red blood cell, anything that is producing a cell in the body, where it's like a, to repair a muscle damage or, or to produce more, mu- more muscle or to produce a red blood cell, that's an anabolic process, right? EPO, right, is, is an anabolic hormone uh, in, in the sense that uh, it creates new red blood cells, right? So if your status is prevalently a catabolic status, all the anabolic processes are going to be suppressed. So one of them is uh, erythropoiesis, which is red blood cell production. So this is why many times we see athletes whose uh, red blood cells are going down or hemoglobin is going down, and yet their ferritin levels, which is the, the way we store iron or the iron levels themselves are completely normal. So this is where we can pinpoint and really identify that the issue is not, is not iron or nutrition in this case, it's overtraining. And there's an, a prevalence in the catabolic status of, a, of an athlete. We asked Coach Jeff Winkler if there were any biomarkers of recovery that he uses with his athletes. The answer is yes. I have a bit of sensitivity to iron deficiency because it's something I experienced when I was racing. And it was a very difficult problem because the medical community kind of didn't buy it. And so getting U.S. doctors to address it, it was like pulling teeth. I I couldn't convince them that there was any performance impact to iron deficiency. But I can tell you experientially, it was dramatic. There was times when I got iron shots and it was a it was like a 180 degree turnaround. I went from being, you're busted, you can't get out of your own way. And and I lost contracts because of that, you know, where the season kind of just fell apart. And I was like, I don't know what's going on. I'm training well, I'm not doing anything wrong. And, and now I can't perform in the race. It took years to really get on top of it. But I remember there were occasions where I received, you know, an iron injection, which was really the only way to deal with the problem with it quickly. And it flipped. I mean, my performance just resumed where it seemed like it should have been all along. And so based on my experience, I paid, you know, I, especially at CU, because these were uh, many of the kids who were on that team were, were quite talented. And you could see them start to struggle and there was no cause. Like you, you could look at school, you could look at the whole stress picture, everything. And you're like, there's really no reason why you shouldn't be performing better. And, and they believed this too. And I would encourage blood tests to check iron status. And probably 75% of them were iron deficient you were, or at least borderline. So that's one that, that I pay close attention to. I think, you know, at elevation, you don't, I mean, I, I haven't worked with anyone that has like true anemia, but the female athletes that I have worked with, that, that problem is even more acute than with men, but it's a real thing for the men too. So that's my focus, I guess, from a blood perspective. Yeah, obviously, hemoglobin is a great thing to look at to, to see what's going on with the athlete, but there are other good biomarkers. And one that I, I have a particular interest in is biomarkers of muscle damage. Now, I'll I'll point out that some sports you see more muscle tearing than others. Sports that are high and have a lot of eccentric activity, you're going to have more tearing. Cycling, you're going to see less because there is no eccentric movement, but I still think you're going to see some muscle damage in cycling. So can you talk 
to the sort of biomarkers that you have for, for muscle damage? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, that yeah, other sports, you know, they have more eccentric movement, like you know, soccer, football, basketball, right? Team sports in general, right? And in fact, you know, you not only they have more muscle damage, but in fact, they have more muscle tissue injuries, and and especially in the uh, in the hamstrings, right? Is 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 the is the muscle that goes the most? But yeah, you're right. In cycling, we don't we don't have those kind of movements, uh, eccentric and nearly as much, right? But but you still see important muscle damage. So this is what we look for. So we look for like uh, there are two main uh, enzymes that I, I look for. There are CK or CPK, creatine phosphokinase uh, or creatine kinase, and also LDHA or I mean, LDH, right? Uh, lactate dehydrogenase. So those are enzymes that are, that are normal in the, in the metabolic function of muscle cells. But when they're micro tears, they leak to the bloodstream. And that's where we can uh, identify them. And we know that they come from the muscle. This is something that has been done also for, for decades in, in cardiology, right? Um, this is nothing new. I mean, I've been doing this for 26 years, but uh, cardiologists have been doing it for a century or so. So because the, the, the heart, uh, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a muscle. And when there's like a, a myocardial infarction, a heart attack, yeah, there's like a damage to those muscles. And that's where you see very high levels of CK and LDH. Obviously, you're not going to see this in a regular athlete. So when you see that those levels are high, they're coming from the muscle, right? And this might be due to uh, excessive uh, training and poor recovery. As we discussed earlier, uh, you, you can elicit muscle damage by, for example, having low carbohydrate availability. Because if you run out of glycogen, the body has an evolutionary mechanism where it's going to utilize muscle protein, right, to produce energy. So the muscles first are breaking themselves to feed themselves. And that's where you have micro tears. And uh, that's where you're going to see muscle damage is, is very common. And that's something, another thing that we have seen also in, in ICU patients. So ICU patients, uh, they pretty much all they have at some point uh, muscle waste or cachexia. And uh, you have a lot of muscle damage in these patients. Now, uh, they're not exercising, but they run out of glycogen as well. And this is a study that we published looking at glycogen content. But um, yeah, the muscles are eating themselves to feed themselves, and especially glutamine. It's a huge fuel for the cells. And, and, and the biggest, largest pool of glutamine is the skeletal muscle. So that's why you see these patients who are in a bed the ICU with a very tremendous amount of muscle damage without doing anything. And this is because of lack of proper nutrition. So anyway, this is why we can also see in, in athletes that it's not just the exertion or the eccentric movement itself, but it could be also the nutrition. Now, for some clarification, anytime we do activity, anytime we do training, we're going to have a little bit of inflammation in the muscle that stays localized, right? And I think mm -hmm. that the levels that you're talking about are when we're starting to detect these in a systemic. When, when we take blood out of your arm, we're seeing these increases in CK and LDH and other markers. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. And, and this is something that I use also to dial in training because sometimes, yeah, you're right, this slight elevation it's physiological and, and it means that, yeah, that there's that stress that you were seeking with training is there. And this is where, okay, now we need to really pay attention to the second phase of the training, which is recovery and nutrition, as we discussed. And it's no big deal, you know. Other times it's the opposite. You see that uh, you believe that that athlete is training well, but has absolutely no stress. You don't see any single blood parameter that is showing any stress. So, that means that that athlete is either being too conservative or maybe the training workload can tolerate more. 
And that's quite individual. You know, there are people who with the same hours or training workloads, some people that can get muscle damage and overtrain and other ones they can hold a lot more. So this is what this is something that I use to dial in trainings better, you know, all the mm-hmm. time. Uh, we've we just been in altitude training, for example, now. And, uh, and yeah, it's just everybody's response, is, as you guys know, is different in altitude. And uh, you see uh, a lot of muscle damage in altitude. Um, in part, is because you utilize a lot more carbohydrates at altitude than at rest. So you really need to fuel up. And some people respond better than others. But I, I, I use this blood analysis to dial in training quite a bit. So something I found really interesting, uh, there's a fairly recent study, this is a 2021 study called Recovery Stress Response of Blood-Based Biomarkers. And they looked at a more chronic under-recovered state in soccer players and badminton players. And they found three markers that seem to be elevated in this this non-recovered state. One, as you just talked about, was creatine kinase, IL-6, which makes sense because IL-6 helps to regulate that muscle repair process. But the one that really surprised me was IL-17, which is released by a particular T-cell called TH-17 cells, which their job is to fight off bacterial infection. So you're, you want, you know, why would they be elevated here? Though we did talk about this inflammatory process and muscle repair in a previous episode and talked about in many ways, if that repair process, that inflammation gets in a normal state kept localized, but if it gets to be too much, it can become systemic and it can mimic in many ways sepsis, which is a influx of, of too much bacterial overload into your body. So this was really interesting to me, and particularly it goes back to what you were saying before about this inflammation being damaging. My thesis research was looking at inflammation and its its effects, um, particularly autoimmune disease. But doing that research, what I really saw is if you have chronic elevation of TH17, that precedes autoimmune disease, that precedes heart disease, that precedes some cancers. So really surprising here to see IL-17 in this mix. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, it's pro-inflammatory element, and yeah, it's 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 involved in in you know, yeah, I don't mean diseases. It's it's, it's increased, right, in uh, different diseases, and, and one of them is arthritis, right, uh, rheumatoid arthritis, mm-hmm. which is it tends to be quite common, right, in, in many former elite athletes, right. Now, I'm not an orthopedic specialist, right, but could that be due to the excess wear and tear of the joints, or or could be that in combination also with the chronic right, IL-17, you know, in these athletes leading to arthritis down the road because it's quite prevalent, you know, in, in, in especially in team sports. But yeah, you're, you're right. I think that, um, yeah, I, I don't think that kind of to what we were saying at the beginning, right? Uh, you don't want to have a, low, a chronic low-grade inflammation, right? And you have IL-6 and IL-17 that if you're chronically high levels, I, you know, and I don't think we have a lot of epidemiological studies, but I, I, I I personally don't think it can be good down the road, right? No, uh, I agree completely. And this is also, I, I don't know if this is, but I mean, we're seeing that more the longevity of athletes is longer and longer. And I think that the deployment of science and uh, the understanding from, from the workload to, to calculate that from the nutrition, from the monitoring, it's highly contributing to this longevity because before athletes, uh, they didn't have much numbers, they didn't have much data. And uh, it was typical to see athletes in the low 30s to say, okay, this is, this is it. My body cannot c- continue. I stop. Now, poof, you see athletes uh, who are peaking 
in in their low 30s, right? And and they're well in in shape until like close to 40, you know? So this this is something I think that is is changing uh, significantly. When we talk about athlete longevity, I think something that we know changes with age is endocrine changes, right? And how does the endocrine system play into biomarkers as we're trying to assess an athlete, right? We have cortisol, we have testosterone. What do we need to know about those to make good decisions? Yeah, and that's that's a very good question too. And, and I think that because of, uh, uh, yeah, we, we are going to see more data in the coming years, I, I, I guess, because and we're seeing more uh, deployment of these methodologies, right? So to really get a lot of parameters and then start establishing correlations with aging, right? But um, I think um, that going back to the same thing as we age, obviously, especially men, we produce less testosterone, women produce less estrogen. You know, we see lower levels for growth hormone as well released. And so we tend to, to, to get more in a catabolic mode faster, right? So this is what I think that for aging athletes, it's more important even to monitor uh, this status and 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 this is why probably why why as, as I mentioned earlier, especially in age groupers, I see tremendous amount of muscle damage uh, in this population uh, in catabolic states. Could that be that? Sure, that that the, the catabolic you know like machinery is is as expressed as in um, younger individuals, but the anabolic machinery is not leading them to that imbalance. But I think that it's important to monitor athletes or, 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 or reg, I mean, recreational athletes, of course, that, uh, who are aging and understand this better. And uh, yeah, and, and we see that testosterone, as you pointed out, right, is a, a great biomarker for anabolism and decreases. Um, but yeah, we, we need to make sure that I, I would say that those ones who are engaging, you know, like in, in levels of a regular activity and uh, uh, they do some blood analysis here and there to make sure that everything is in place, is checked. Yeah, so if we take a, a step back and look at the wider picture of that, then we can use these biomarkers of testosterone and cortisol to get a sense of the balance of anabolic and catabolic processes in all ages, not just in the aging athlete, correct? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, this is these are great indicators, you know, of like testosterone as an anabolic marker and cortisol as a catabolic marker, and both are uh, really we use this all the time to understand this balance uh, with all kinds of uh, athletes, right? But absolutely, you know, the whole ratio is is it's quite important to see if uh, there's, you know, as I said, sometimes we see very high levels of cortisol and very low levels of uh, testosterone. So that athlete is, is it's in the very catabolic. So performance normally is going to be decreased. And that the athlete has also a higher possibility of getting injured. Sometimes we see a very high levels of cortisol, but also very high levels of testosterone as well. So there's a balance, right? There's a lot of catabolism, but at the same time, there's a lot of anabolism. And sometimes, you know, like as I mentioned earlier, like we might see very, very low levels of cortisol, and very high levels of testosterone. So that is telling us that our athlete can be pushed more because he's not, you know, can tolerate a lot more workload. This is another parameter that I use when I see these, these ratios. It's like, whoa, this athlete is not getting much stimulation, you know, uh, can tolerate more for sure. And I know when it comes for, for, for females, it is more difficult to establish these ratios because of the testosterone in, in women, right? But at least cortisol is always good, uh, a very good uh, parameter overall. Uh, it's more difficult to do this in women. And I, I tend to do then a growth hormone uh, levels and, or IGF-1, which are very, very expensive to do and not, not, not easy to, to find. 
right? But that the t- testosterone to cortisol ratio in, in female athletes is more difficult, obviously. So then we might have more like our cortisol levels uh, and then a holistically approach, but your heart rate, when you go a high intensity, is what your sensations, you know, your perceived effort. So, so it's just trickier. Definitely working with, uh, with female athletes, uh, um, yeah, because of the, their, their physiological responses also to the uh, menstrual cycle, right? Um, uh, it can it can be more 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 difficult to figure out some parameters uh, that can lead us to some conclusions. A really good point. How does the individual athlete utilize this? Do they have to work with their doctor? Are there services? How often should people be testing it? Is this just something that we do because maybe it's expensive when something is going wrong? What's the actual actionable info that comes out of this? No, that's a, that's a great great question, great point for sure. So I, I normally, obviously, with elite athletes, I do this uh, on a monthly basis, even less sometimes. But I think that for more like a your recreational athlete or or even like a competitive athlete that is not a professional, I would do that uh, definitely a baseline at the beginning of the preseason to see where your baseline levels are, so you can go back to them. Right? I will do another one maybe when the season starts or in the first part of the season, maybe another one in the middle of the season. And any time that you feel that something out of whack, there's something wrong, my performance has decreased, has plummeted, or maybe like a month before my main goal or a month and a half where you can see that things have changed and they're leading you towards overtraining and you can correct those. So I would say definitely, you know, like a few times a year that would be important to do. But uh, uh, regarding like, uh, yeah, where to go, this is, this is the, the, the difficulty, especially here in the United States. In Europe, you know, there's a lot of culture of doing these blood biomarkers. I was doing this when I was 15 years old as a junior. It was a normal thing for, for kids. Now, when I came to the U.S. 13 years ago, almost nobody in the country did this. And in fact, within our sports medicine fellowship at the university, you know, people don't do this either. Uh, people... In most sports medicine doctors here are more into the orthopedic side. It's, it's not as holistic as in Europe, where in Europe, more of the sports medicine doctor is also a physiologist, nutritionist, slash cardiologist, a little bit of everything. It's a much more holistic. And I think that um, uh, more and more sports medicine doctors are getting into that uh, route to, to become more holistic, right? But it's not easy. It's not easy. And I, I, I don't have the, the answer for that. And and, and, and your family doctor your, or your primary care provider, yeah, they're, they're very busy enough already with, with, with dealing with people with um, important diseases, right? That they don't have much time to, 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 to look into this or, or they don't have that enough education or of, of experience, right? But uh, so, yeah, it's not easy. So I would, I would try to find out about some, some provider or someone who has access to this blood analysis uh, and has some experience. But again, it's not easy. And I don't have the right answer, to be honest, about I, where to go. Yeah, sometimes recognizing it's a tough problem to solve is the right answer. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, maybe this is a, a Fast Talk Labs uh, project for the future. There we go. Well, I mean, I'm sure this is going to become increasingly important. And hopefully this is something that doctors are going to be able to start doing for athletes, as opposed to, as you said, just focusing on biomarkers for, for when somebody's in a disease state. So I think it's, it's time, Dr. Samalan, thank you. That was very informative, but it's time to jump into our take-homes. So you know the routine here. You have one minute. Give us what you think is the most pertinent message that our listeners need to take away from this episode. 
Great. Well, first of all, thank you very much, Trevor and, uh, and Rob. I really appreciate this. I think this is a very important topic and uh, yeah, the work that you guys are doing to educate uh, listeners and, and open their eyes and new doors is, is fantastic and, and instrumental. So yeah, great work and thank you for doing this. And as a quick take home, I, I would say that, as I mentioned, like nutrition is key to prevent overtraining and nutrition and, and, and training has to be, they have to be together. Then monitoring different parameters. Uh, some obviously the, the blood analysis are more difficult to do, but there are other ones. They're, they're quite easy, inexpensive, which is, as we have discussed, the heart rate response when we wake up, when we're, while we exercise. This is a very, very reliable parameter, incredibly reliable. And then, yeah, listen to your sensations. That's the other thing too. You know, like I, if you feel that you're tired or fatigued, maybe you are tired and fatigued. And maybe you have to understand that you don't have to train much, even even if you, if, if you only are training six hours a week. But, and then try to work on the things around why you're fatigued or tired. Is that the nutrition? Is the lack of sleep? Is the lack of recovery? And also seek a, some help if you are into some uh, goal or, or you want to train at a, more specific level, try to surround yourself by people with experience understanding these, these issues. Fantastic. Rob, your first one from this side. Wow, Trevor, my take-homes from this. Uh, what I'm hearing is strengthening the things that I have believed for a long time, that a holistic approach is absolutely critical for everything that we do. And we can include blood biomarkers in that, that both blood biomarkers need to be looked at holistic themselves, but also as part of a holistic package that's assessing an athlete. There's a lot of things that we can dive into. It is perhaps a difficult topic for people to be able to follow along with this because a lot of it is, is very detailed information and that you know, right now the medical community in the U.S. is maybe a step behind on really a, a great thing or a real benefit to athletes. And, you know, so that we'll, we'll continue pushing that, that athletes have, this as a resource, there are other resources, and uh, you can continue to arm yourself with knowledge in the attempt to get better at what you do. So my take home, I really latched on to that comment you had in your chapter about the fact that too many athletes see a recovery day as a missed opportunity. There is this mentality of, oh, I might be feeling bad and the legs might be hurting, but I got to be tough. I got to just push through because that's what athletes do. But talking about these markers, talking about the effects, you see that it is more than that. If you are constantly pushing through and not recovering, your body goes into a catabolic state, which means it can't be rebuilding tissue. It's depleting your, your energy stores. You're seeing inflammation and surprising forms of inflammation that if that's kept elevated can lead to bad places, lead to conditions. So that a rest day is a missed opportunity is really the wrong mindset. You need to find that balance. You need to let all these things that are happening inside your body get to the places they need to get to. You need to get to that anabolic state. You need to restore those fuels and clear that inflammation. And that's why the recovery is so important. All right, Dr. Samalan, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much. That was another episode of Fast Talk. Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcasts. Be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. As always, we love your feedback. Join the conversation at forums.fasttalklabs.com to discuss each and every episode. Become a member of Fast Talk Laboratories at fasttalklabs.com slash join and become a part of our education and coaching community. 
For Dr. Inigo Samulan, Dr. Jason Glowney, Armando Mastrasi, Jeff Winkler, and Robert Pickles, I'm Trevor Connor. Thanks for listening. <laughs>